Okay, so as we get into chapter 2 tonight, we're going to go ahead and uh, review just quickly and then jump right into the new material. And so uh, I do not have chapter 3 for you guys tonight. Um, I wanted to make sure we finished chapter 2. I knew we wouldn't have time to really get into chapter 3. So what we're going to do is next Sunday night, we'll give you chapter 3 and you'll have that ready to go. Um, and so we'll move on from there. But chapter 2, uh, we've covered the first 16 verses in chapter 2, and uh, again, remembering what we left off in chapter 1, uh, that Paul's point, his greater context is what? Like, what is Paul's overarching theme that we've discovered to this point from chapter 1 into chapter 2? What is his desire for the content we've been reviewing or looking at? What does he want to have happen? Or what does he want us to understand? What does he want us to know? Okay, there you go. Boom. We all need Christ, right? In chapter 1, the first part of chapter 1, he does what? He talks about how he's thankful for the church. He's praying for the church. He's encouraging the church. Then he gets into about halfway through chapter 1. He starts talking about the Gentiles, those that are considered non-Jews that are outside of Christ. He starts talking about their need for Christ. He starts talking about that they are, uh, their conscience and creation are witnesses to them and really against them in their sin, that they need Christ. And he goes through all of the rest of chapter 1 really expounding on what that looks like, uh, the sin that takes place in people's lives, how it's controlling and deceiving. Um, there is no greater deception than sin in our lives uh, because sin is the great lie, right? What is the promise of sin? Before, sin? before you understand the fullness of what sin is, what's the initial promise of sin? What's sin promise you in the beginning? Pleasure, okay. Fulfillment, satisfaction, right? In the beginning, sin comes like a great gift. Oh, you need this. You, you can't even live without this. If you don't have this, you'll never be happy. You'll never be content. You need this. You need this. So then we give in to whatever it is or that is. And then what do we find once we give into it? Especially as believers, what do we find? What are some of the consequences of sin? Okay. It cost way more than you ever wanted to spend. Absolutely. Addictions, right? Conviction. conviction. I'm sorry, I thought you said addictions, but that, that happens too. Yeah, bondage, okay. What else comes? Okay, God's wrath. If you're outside of Christ, you're just storing up. We're going to get to that in a little bit here, right? In Christ, we know we're free from the wrath of God. He's taking it for us, but what do we have? It's not the, the wrath of God isn't on us because we've been saved from that. What do we experience as believers who sin? Guilt, right? conviction, right? This weight of just, oh, why did I do that? Okay. What else is a consequence of sin or a payment of sin? How about loss, right? Loss of relationships. Others, God, uh, we are mad at ourselves, right? Do you ever get divided in yourself? Where you're just like, I can't believe I did that. I hate me, okay? Like, that's division in yourself. Like, you're not even just talking division this way. It's internal. It's like, I am, man, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I would do that, right? So when we think about this idea of sin, Paul's laying out all these sins, and he's saying, he gets into chapter 2, and he's talking about that there's this judgment coming. That we think, in our culture today, that the absence of instant judgment from God, now, I don't mean consequences. I mean, what could God do to a sinner if he wanted to in the moment they sin? Yeah, you're done, right? Do you realize that God thought a thought 
and creation happened. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's how powerful God is. God could think a thought, and you cease to exist forever. Okay? Yeah, technically, he could say, you know what? You're done. Without even snapping his It's just, that's how powerful he is. And we're righteously, or right, rightly deserving that in our unrighteousness. But God is gracious, and God is kind, and God is what? giving time for repentance. But when we sin in this world as an unbeliever, not in Christ, we sin, and there's no fire, there's no, I'm not consumed, I actually start to think, not only is this okay what I'm doing, God's okay with what I'm doing. Because look, nothing happened, right? How about when we sin, or someone outside of Christ sins, and they actually seemingly are blessed. They sin in some way, and they get a raise at work. They sin in some way, and they get this nice new car. They sin in some way, and they have a bigger house than you do. And it's almost just frustrating when you see this happening, because you're like, Lord. And Paul gets into chapter 2, and I love what Paul says in chapter 2. He says, hey, listen, don't think for a second you're getting away with this stuff. He actually says, you're storing up for the day of wrath. We covered it in your notes. What did we say? When we as Christians, as followers of Christ, when we're doing things for Christ and we're working for him and we're laboring for Christ, what does the Bible say we're doing when we're doing that as far as our relationship to heaven? What are we doing with those works? What are they, what are they doing for us? Maybe I'll say it that way. They're storing up treasures in heaven. And Jesus is saying that's the best place to, to put a savings account, really. Like you want to talk about retirement, that's the best retirement plan, really. You want to make sure you've got some good retirement that regard, okay? Because the stuff on earth, what can happen to the stuff on earth? Destroy, disappear, okay? Do you know what happens in most cases when somebody dies who has a lot of stuff? It's either given away, thrown away, fought over, right? Oh, I love you. Oh, I know it's so sad that they died two weeks later. That's mine, and I'll kill you if you take it. Like, Wow, where's that family unity now? Where's that love and bond now? We need a court to step in and tell a, a family member and a family member not to argue over who gets mom's china dolls. Like, what? where have we come as a people that that's not seen as wrong? But we see these things happening, and yet we, we covet these things. We hunger for these things. We want more stuff just so that when we die, people will fight over it. The bank will take it. Whatever. Goodwill will get it. Whoever gets it, right? Jesus says, no, no, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth or rust, right, doesn't corrupt and what? No one can come in and steal it. It's safe. It's secure. That principle that Jesus lays forth in a positive sense, Paul's laying forth a similar principle in a negative sense. In the same aspect, when we sin outside of Christ, God is gracious. He doesn't remove judgment from the unbeliever. What does he do? He delays judgment. Now, some judgment comes, right? Some consequences come, but when I am outside of Christ and I sin in some way and I don't receive instantaneous destruction and this, this guy just wipes me out, that's grace, isn't it? Isn't it grace that God says, you're outside of Christ, you're a sinner, you're broken my laws, you're continuing to sin, but for the next 60 years or whatever, I'm going to delay the wrath that I could pour out on you because I'm giving you time to repent. That's grace. That is how good God is. And yet we're so quick to question his goodness, even those of us that are free from the wrath of God, that have been forgiven and, and made free. 
And so Paul is reminding us, hey, listen, you're not going to get out of jail free. It's not going to happen. The only way the wrath of God is subsided off of our lives for eternity is what? How can I have the wrath of God taken off of my life for eternity? Accept Christ because what happened with the wrath of God when Christ was on the cross? It's poured out on him. And so when I receive Christ, the wrath that I rightly deserve was actually given to him who knew no sin was made sin. And so when we see this, Paul is saying, man, and he even gets into it, right? He talks about in, um, let's see here, where is it thou? Verse 4, Romans 2, 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. He's saying, do you know the only way you're going to find repentance is because God's been good to you. God's been gracious to you. God's given you time for repentance. And so he goes through this continued thought through chapter 2. Then we get down to talking about the law, right? He talks a lot about the law in chapter 2. Uh, this is why we would say, and I, or I would say, that chapter 2, I believe, when he transitions from chapter 1, the Gentiles, chapter 2, he transitions into the Jews, those that would be Jewish but not believers, those that are Jews who are not believers. And he talks about the law. And he gives us two groups of people, those with the law and those without the law. Okay, who are those with the law? Jews. Who are those without the law? Gentiles. Pretty simple, okay? The Jews had a misunderstanding, though. They thought what? Because we've heard the law, we have the law, we're, you know, descendants of Abraham, we're good. We've heard the law, therefore somehow we're more righteous than those that have not heard the law. What's Paul's comment to that? It's not in hearing the law, but in what? Doing the law. And how do we have to do the law? Sort of, kind of, 50-50? He says, perfection. I used the illustration a while ago. If you walked into a college classroom and the professor said, okay, I'm going to give you this exam, and if you score anything less than 100% perfection, you are dropped from the class and you fail. Most of us would think that's the most unfair professor. Now, I had some that made me feel that way, okay? I had some that made me think they were that way. But how is it that God could be so strict on this? How is it that God has the right? I mean, how dare God really come to us and say, you better be perfect to get in? I mean, who give, what gives God the right? Okay, there you go, right? A little devil's advocate. He created us. Okay, he gave himself the right because he's God, he's holy, he's just, right? He has all authority over us. How about the fact that it's his heaven? <laughs> he can dictate who he wants in or not. What's that? It's his kingdom, absolutely. And he's so good and gracious, he says to us, perfection is the standard. And so because perfection is the standard and you can't be perfect, I'll send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be perfection for you. And now all you have to do is receive it. It's amazing how God is so good. So those who have the law think they're blessed because they have it, but God, through Paul, says, nope. You can't do it. You're not perfect in the law. Hearing the law isn't the key. It's doing the law. We as Christians do this today, don't we? Even as Christians, we make this mistake, not with the law, but what do we make the, the mistake of thinking? What does James say? You think by hearing the word of God, you're good and you're mature and you're, you're growing. But James says what? It's not hearing, but doing. It's he who does the word of God that is blessed in his deed. It's not a salvation matter. It's an, a matter of discipleship. People sit in churches all the time and hear great messages, good messages. There's online, there's messages. Man, there's just a ton of resources out there. And people will listen to hard messages and go, oh, that was so convicting. It was good. 
Man, I amen like seven times. I even threw a hallelujah in there. It was that good. And then we leave the message and live the exact same way. We, and we, but we've deceived ourselves and we think we're so much more mature or righteous because I listen to tough preaching. I listen to hard pre- I mean, I, I, I listen to the Word of God diligently. It's great. It's good we listen to the Word of God. And I believe the Word of God is working in us even when we don't know it's working in us. But James says, man, that's good and great, but it's doing, it's applying the word of God that will bring the blessings of God into our life. Not blessings necessarily financially or provisions through material things, but how about the blessings of peace and comfort and wisdom? You know, one of the greatest blessings God gives us is his wisdom. Man, he is wise. And he says in James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, just ask. How good and gracious is that? That we screw up constantly, and when we go to him for grace, he gives us grace, and then he even encourages us, now would you listen to me this time? Do you ever screw up really bad, but then you realize if you would have listened to God and his word, you never would have made the mistake in the first place? I've been there. Nobody raised their hand. Okay, that's fine. I'm just going to look down there. Okay, I'm just kidding. I didn't ask you to raise your hand. We've all been there. But he says, hey, I'm just gracious to you. So with the law, they're judged by the law. Right? Those with the law are judged by the law, Paul says. You hear it, you know it, therefore when you stand before God, you're guilty of the law. You violated it, and you did it willingly. You didn't, you weren't, whoop, whoops, I didn't know. No, you knew the law. You've known the law since you were four years old, and you did it anyway. Those without the law. Many people would think those without the law are free and clear. Well, they didn't know the law. Paul says, no, they perish under the law or without the law. They weren't under the law, but they perish without the law. How is that? He says, your conscience. They know when they did wrong. They know when they sin. God has given them that, and we see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. So here, whether you have the law in sin, guilty, wrath of God. Don't have the law in sin, guilty, wrath of God. And he's building this case. Let's go into verse 17. Romans 2, 17. We'll read verses 17 through 20. He's continuing down this idea of the Jews being guilty before God. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We read this, didn't we? I didn't mark that in my notes. We did read this. So let's review that real quick, because what did we say here? When you read verses 17 to 20, um, if you weren't here, uh, go ahead and just peruse it real quick to yourself and just kind of catch up that way. But I'll review a little bit here. When you read this, Paul's making some pretty uh, amazingly positive statements about the Jews. He's being very, it sounds very rather encouraging. He's talking about all the things the Jews should be doing and really are not doing. To me, this is another example of Paul being a little rhetorical. Because this, in 17 to 20, this is what the Jews thought they were doing. This is who the Jews of the day thought they were. They thought they were doing all these things, just like they thought these things in the, God, or the ministry of Christ. But what is Paul going to tell them? You've not done these things. And the reality check is, when you read 17 to 20, that's what the Jews were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be leading those that didn't know, teaching those who didn't know, serving those who didn't know. And that's why Jesus, in the Gospels, was so hard on the religious leaders. What does Jesus say about the blind leading the blind? Do you catch the connection here to what Paul says? He talks about here that uh, in verse 19, "...and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind." So in this understanding, if we're thinking in a positive context, who are the blind? In this verse, who are the blind? The Jews are leading the blind. Who's the blind? The Gentiles. Why are they blind? They don't have the law, so they're blind to that. So what do they need? They need someone to come alongside and lead them into what the law says about God and about themselves. And then what? How to be made right with God. 
But Jesus says, what about the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day? You are the blind leading the blind. Now, a a Pharisee would get very angry at that. This is why they picked up stones to stone him and, you know, come up with ways to crucify him because he ticked them off all the time. But why? Because he told them the truth. I don't think he was just being a jerk to be a jerk or anything like that. I think he was just telling the truth. You're supposed to be a guide to the blinds, but how can you guide the blind if you yourself are blind? Now, what were they blind in? They knew the law, but what was the problem? They weren't living the law. They weren't following the law. They were putting extra burdens on people and adding to the law of God with their traditions and also the garbage. And so they were actually making themselves blind and then trying to lead a blind person into knowing God. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. And so Paul here is basically saying, this is who the Jews are supposed to be. Now, how does Paul know this? Yeah, he was a Jew. And he wasn't just a Jew, right? Circumcised the eighth day, right? Of this tribe, this great man of God, Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay? When Paul says a Pharisee of Pharisees, what's he referring to when he says that? How would, we, how would you say that differently? I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. What's he getting at there? Okay, giant among men. There's Pharisees, then there's me. Like this is how far above them I am. He even says what? If you want to boast, I can boast. I've got all the spiritual credentials you can name. He had all the knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew the Word of God so well. And that's why he can say clearly, this is who you're supposed to be, because probably because Paul's saying, in my mind, little kind of reading into it a little bit here, but if I was thinking as Paul's thinking here, Paul's probably thinking, this is who I tried to be. Think about it. This is who Paul tried to be. I mean, Paul was so passionate for God. When he heard of this Jesus and these followers, he said, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not letting this run around. I'm going to take care of this. And he pursued, the, he put him in prison. That's how committed he was. That's how zealous for God he was. He wasn't chasing down Christians and arresting them because he hated Christians. He was chasing down Christians and arresting them because he loved God. And he saw them as false teachers perverting the word of God, detracting from the true and living God. And he, as a Jew, had to react. He had to fight against this thing. And so much so, the only way Paul came to Christ was because of what? Why did Paul come to Christ? Because Christ came to him. Right. And he blinded him. Right. And I love that about that because Jesus understood something about the Apostle Paul. I don't think Jesus was ever, how I want to say this. I don't think Jesus was ever mad at Paul, per se. I think Jesus understood being God, Paul's exact motivation for why he did what he did. And I think Jesus saw Paul's heart as someone trying to do what he believed God wanted him to do. He was trying to live this out. And Jesus had to bring him to a moment of realization that says, Paul, listen, you're getting it all wrong. And that's why I believe he chose Paul the way he did, because he knew Paul's heart. He knew Paul was zealous. He knew Paul was passionate. And then guess what? What does Paul become? As far as we can tell on Scripture, the pages of Scripture, one of the greatest Christian missionaries we've ever read of. Because he took that same zealous, that same passionate spirit that he had for God and under the right understanding and wisdom from God, receiving Christ now redirects that to promote Christ, to glorify God. And he was just as passionate for God after Christ as he was before, but now he understood who Christ was and that made all the difference. Does that make sense? I've just always thought about that. I feel like we, man, we really, and Paul himself beats himself up for what he did because he realized that was actually of God. 
But man, I look back and I think, I, I applaud, Paul, applaud Paul for being so passionate in what he believed. And honestly, I'll say this too. I feel this way about those that practice other faiths in our world. Those that are, practice Hinduism or Buddhism, they give up all these things. And I understand they're doing it as a works-based and doing it out of fear and all these things. But I'll tell you this much, as much as I disagree with that, their view, as much as I tell you that will not gain them heaven because it's outside of Christ, I, can, I have to step back and say, but in a lot of ways, you're showing up those that know Christ with your dedication and your commitment and your passion. I mean, there are those that are willing to give up everything to follow their, their idea of who God is. And at the end of the day, we can disagree with them. We can talk to them. We can witness to them. We can share them the error of their ways and their thinking. But at the end of the day, we have to say, but man, you believe what you believe, and that I respect. I, I respect that you are passionate about what you believe. I've even shared it before. I heard an atheist speaker. You guys remember um, Penn and Teller? Remember the, the magician comedy duo Penn and Teller? Um, I forget which one is Penn and which one's Teller. Maybe you guys can help me out with this. The, guy, the bigger guy with the ponytail, which one's that? That's Penn. Okay. He's extremely, at least he was last I knew. This has been a couple of years that I saw this interview. He's extremely atheistic, like hyper atheistic. Okay. Has zero, any interest in God as far as that goes. But I heard an interview by him that he said that if he met a Christian who did not try to lead him to Christ and wasn't passionate in doing so, he would not believe that person was truly a Christian. And this is what he meant by that. He said, if you really believe that Jesus died for sinners so that I don't go to hell and you don't tell me about that, then you, there's no way you're a Christian because you don't love me. He's like, how can you tell me you love me but not tell me what keeps me from hell? He said, I don't respect Christians who don't witness. I don't respect believers who don't witness. Now, a believer that comes to me and passionately shares Christ, I disagree with them. I'll debate with them, but I respect them. I respect them because they actually live what they believe. And that's always stuck with me that this guy that is totally opposed to the Bible went to church as a kid, by the way, grew up in a Presbyterian church or some kind of church. He's totally opposed to the Bible, but gives zero respect to Christians that don't witness to him. And I think about that sometimes in our own understanding that we think, well, if I say that, it's going to bother them. No, if you live what you believe, they're going to respect you, even though they may disagree with you. So Paul is showing us an example of that in his own life. So that's all somewhere else. But let's get back to the text. Verses 21 through 29. We see here in your notes, Paul gets to the heart of the matter for the Jews. Verses 21 through 29. Can I get a volunteer to read those couple of verses? Romans 2, 21 through 29. Any volunteers that would like to read? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yes, the eight, all eight verses. Yes, absolutely. Sacrilege, yep. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonoring, dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made 
Okay, awesome job. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Okay, there's a lot going on in there, okay? It's got to be one of the most uses of the word circumcision I've ever seen in my life in the Bible, okay? Unless you get out of the Old Testament. But Yeah. <laughs> so when I read this portion of, of Romans 2, do you know what it reminds me of? Romans 7. What I do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And I'm not doing it. It's got that kind of a vibe to it. It's got that kind of a rhetorical, kind of a back and forth, open questions. And so here, again, what's Paul doing? Well, he's going to kind of bring it home. He's bringing it home to the, to the Jews. He's bringing it home to this understanding of what's really the problem here. Uh, here we see Paul using rhetorical questions to drive home a point. He basically is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Jews who are teaching others not to break the law, or to not break the law, rather, but they are breaking the law. When the Jews tried to force the law on others and judge them when they failed, while they themselves are failing, we see this in verses 1 and 2. This is, again, why I believe 1 and 2 of chapter 2 is dealing with Jews, not moral pagans, because, again, I think it ties directly to the application part of the chapter as Paul gets to the end here dealing with the Jews. So let me read that again. When the Jews tried to force the law on others— and judge them when they failed while they themselves are failing, the Gentiles actually mocked and blasphemed God. Uh, did you catch that when, when Kelsey was reading? Uh, that when you look here in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Not through them, not through what they do, but you, the ones that know the law, the ones that are supposed to be teaching them, guess what? They're actually blaspheming God because of you. And what's the problem? Not that they were preaching truth. Not that they were trying to preach the law to them. They were preaching the law, but what? Not living it themselves. And then not only not doing it themselves, but then judging those who aren't doing it. And the, them, them themselves, they're fine. They're good. They're, they're doing all right. Here we see, and I don't, did I put this in your notes? I'm not sure if I did. Paul quotes Isaiah 52.2. Do you have that? Okay. So here we see when it says, it is written, when he says, it is written, Paul's quoting um, in verse 24, Isaiah 52, to many believe, uh, to prove his point. He's giving, again, an Old Testament reference to these Jews to kind of back up what he is saying. Now, I want to be fair here to the Jewish audience hearing this. Because so far, when I've said the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, what am I doing? I'm overgeneralizing an entire group of people and lumping them all in as the exact same. It's not 100% fair uh, because they may not all have been intentionally violating God's law. Think of it in our own day and age. Do you think there was Jews that lived in this timeline that are really, really, really trying to do the right thing? That are really trying to do that and then really not judging those that fail? That are really trying not to judge them? That are really trying to do the right things and then are being honest about their hypocrisy? Of course there are. Of course there are people that are doing this. But Paul's point as he's kind of overgeneralizing this as well, his point is that righteousness cannot be earned in trying to follow the law, but must be found in Christ. No matter how hard they try, they cannot fulfill the law of God. No matter how much they don't want to do these things, sooner or later they're going to fall. They're going to fail. So Paul's point is, listen, it's just as silly as trying to live the law and live the law and not get there as it is to point at someone else and say, you failed, you messed up, while you yourself are messing up and failing. And so Paul also speaks uh, in this passage a lot about circumcision. And when we see it mentioned, 
uh, so much. We need to remind ourselves of the importance of circumcision for the Jews. Uh, When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis, we see a sign of the covenant that was given. Uh, The sign was an outward symbol representing an inward commitment. Okay, we see this first mentioned really talked about in Genesis 17. And so what is circumcision? It's an outward sign of an inward commitment. That's a super simple, uh, oversimplified definition of it in my mind, but it's a fair one, I believe. So the Jews in Paul's day put such an emphasis on the outward symbol, they neglected the inward commitment. So get this now. They believe circumcision is important. They know it's a sign of this covenant with Abraham. They've done this throughout their history. But over time, what tends to happen? The outward symbol gets all the attention, while the inward commitment fails and falls and kind of fades away. And so Paul's point is, you can talk about how, oh, look, we're people of this. We're people of Abraham. We're circumcised. We've got this thing. We're right. And yet if the inward isn't right, what does he say actually happens? Your circumcision that you're trying to boast in and glorify in the sign, what actually is happening in God's eyes? What's it becoming? Uncircumcision. It's, you're no better than the Gentiles. You're no different than the Gentiles who are trying to do good and trying to make it right. But you think, and that's the deception part. A Gentile who sins and doesn't know, yes, they're still guilty of their sin, but these Jews, they know and still do it. They know and they still think this is going to cover it up and make it better. Uh, Rabbinical commentaries, commentaries written by rabbis, uh, reflect that the Jews of Paul's day saw circumcision as a virtual guarantee of eternal life. Jews of Paul's day saw circumcision as a virtual guarantee of eternal life. Again, so much emphasis on the outward symbol. This is familiar to us today because this is what some in the church do with baptism or the Lord's Supper or how about church membership? No, 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 I'm good. I'm a member of blah, blah, blah church. No, I'm good. I've taken the Lord's Supper three times this year alone. I'm good. I'll take the Lord's Supper every day. What did some of the Jews even say when the one stood in the temple and he looked over at the tax collector and he was praising God, saying, God, thank you, I'm not like him. What did he glory in? I fast how many times? Right? I fast seven times. I'm just, look, I do all this for you. What was he, what was he thinking about fasting? What's fasting for him? It's a guarantee. I'm good. I do all these things. What's that? Good deeds. It's good deeds, but covered up by religion. Right? It's not a normal good deed because God says to do the Lord's Supper. God says to fast. God says we should be baptized. God says we should pray. And then we put too much emphasis on those things as a means to salvation. And now we've got all of our emphasis over here and we've completely ignored the truth of the gospel, which is the inward changing and transforming of Christ. So here, we think these things, these outward things, will cover my unrighteousness. I can tell you what, you can get baptized every day and make the water as dirty as you want. We'll even sprinkle some stuff in there and call it holy. It'll be great. Ain't going to do nothing for you. Ain't going to do nothing for you. This is why for me, honestly, and I know maybe even there's some in here that because of your denominational background, you might disagree with this. And I'm not, it's not a matter of division. It's not a gospel matter. But, but I don't believe, and our church doesn't believe, in infant baptism. I don't believe it's encouraged in Scripture. And I know there are some great men of God. Uh, if any of you have ever listened to or heard of R.C. Sproul, 
Uh, he's reformed in his thinking and his theology, but it's still a, a very strong Bible teacher. Uh, he would hold to infant baptism. He believes that infant baptism is okay and encouraged. Not for the means of salvation, not for the means of those things, but in the same sense that we would believe baptism is a sign, is, a, is an encouragement. He would actually say circumcision happens to a child, baptism happens to a child, therefore it's preparing them is kind of how I've, I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit, but that's kind of how I've heard it said. But we get into scripture post-Christ, once Christ has come, we only see baptism happening after the salvation experience. But can I tell you something? One of my other kind of concerns and again, I understand there's minds that are so much greater than mine that are fine with infant baptism. That's fine, and that's all good. I, I just don't see it in my understanding of Scripture. But when I think about that, my other concern, not just a theological concern, is that how many people are living in the world today that think they're fine because I was baptized as a kid? I'm good. I'm fine. No, I'm good. I don't need to do anything else. I've been baptized as a child. That's fine. Now, I'm not saying that they were taught that when they were a kid. I'm not saying that that perception was given to them. Now, in some cases, in some churches, some backgrounds, maybe it was. In other cases, maybe not. But either way, there are people that don't know Christ that are going to die in their sin and spend an eternity in hell, but think they're fine because I was baptized. This is, again, it's the same thing what Paul's saying. You can be circumcised and be, okay, fine, but it doesn't do anything for you spiritually if you don't know Christ because you can't fulfill the law. You can't do it without Christ. The point here that Paul is making when he, the Jews focused on the outward to impress men or flaunt over our supposed righteousness, they were trying to impress other people and show themselves to be more righteous than them. They showed themselves as unrighteous, as we do when we commit the same flaw. A true Jew, as Paul has kind of alluded to, is a Jew inwardly. This is what I believe Jesus was saying of Nathaniel. Okay, so I need somebody to read one verse. John 1.47. John 1.47. If somebody wants to turn there just ever so quickly. John 1.47. I see people turning there. Once you're there, go ahead and just give me a... Oh, Joe, you didn't give me the... Okay, there you go. That's all right. All right. Go ahead and read verse uh, John one forty seven. Okay, uh, this is interesting. What does he mean by an Israelite indeed? Not like in action, but I N D E E D indeed. What does he mean by that? What do you think he's saying there when Jesus said, "Behold, an Israelite"? Which what is an Israelite? A Jew. Okay. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming. Hey, look, this Israelite is an Israelite indeed. There's no guile in the King James or deception. A, a Jew, Jewish man that really his heart is for God and he really is striving to do what the law says he should do. Okay, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. It, and Jesus actually uses the same terminology. Is it going through that? Okay. Pay no attention to that. It's just going to, I know, yeah, he came in here, but he didn't turn it off. Um, and I can't do it right now, but it's fine. Just pay no attention to the screen, okay? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay, so that's the Wizard of Oz for any of our young people that don't know. Okay, Wizard of Oz, okay? All right, so when you think about this, Jesus is giving a compliment here, right? Is that fair? Could you imagine you're Nathaniel, and this guy's like, hey, look, this guy's a Jew indeed, an Israelite indeed. There's no deception in his mouth. Do you think Nathaniel ever lied? We don't know, but what does Jesus say? He's, he's not speaking deception, 
I find this interesting because what did Nathaniel just say before this? Does anyone remember if you're in the passage? What does Nathaniel say just before this? Go ahead and say it nice and loud, Kathy. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay, and he said this in reaction to hearing that what? Where was Messiah supposed to be coming from? So Nathaniel just basically mocked Jesus as not being Messiah. And again, again, put it in big picture. Because he comes from Nazareth. He's showing a prejudiced thought. He's being prejudiced, right? You come from Nazareth. Okay, buddy, you're from Galilee too. It ain't that much better. Okay, the Jews in Judah look down on us too, okay? But he's showing prejudice to this guy. He's never even met him. And he shows up and Jesus' first words are, this guy's got no deception in his mouth. And if I was Nathaniel, I'd be like, dude, I just mocked you. Like, I just said you're not even the Messiah because of where you were born, where you came from, where you grew up. But then he starts to talk to Jesus and have this beautiful interaction. Do you know what Jesus was saying? It's exactly what, what Julie said. It's he was saying, this guy is a Jew inwardly. He means what he says. He speaks truth. Now, what he said sounded prejudiced, and it was. But in their understanding and their cultural norm, that was true. It wouldn't have made sense to come from Nazareth if you were the Messiah. Nathaniel was truthful and honest before God and others. He was not perfect, but his heart was right before God. Jesus honored him for his faithfulness to God. If you're going to get somebody that encourages you and says, hey, great testimony, Jesus would be a good one to kind of have on your side. And this is what he does here. Also, when you see here in that passage, uh, if you read on there, Nathaniel basically asks Jesus, how do you even know me? Right? I don't know you. How do you know me? More or less. What does Jesus say? I saw you when you were, what does it say? Under the fig tree, right? Under the fig tree. Culture says, and some of you maybe have read commentary on this. Culture says that the comment under the fig tree relates to a tree that would have been outside Nathaniel's home. Uh, This most likely was a place where he prayed and spent time with God. It totally makes sense when you think about it that way. Usually the homes were smaller, and he wanted some time with God, and so he would go out and sit in the shade of this fig tree, and that's most likely where Nathaniel would spend time with God, pray, seek God, all those kind of things. And when Jesus says, I knew you when you were under the fig tree, I think that's why it rings so powerful for Nathaniel. Well, wait a minute here. Hang on. Nobody was there when I was by the fig tree. It was just me and God, right? Could you imagine the look in Nathaniel's eyes when him and Jesus made eye contact, and Jesus said, I knew you when you were under the fig tree. You know what Jesus is saying? I heard that prayer. I know what your heart is about. I know. I know you, Nathaniel. I know your heart. Paul goes on to say that a true Jew does not require the praise of men, but of God, which is what Nathaniel received from Christ. Isn't that awesome? It says it right there in verse 29. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. This is Jesus. We, the Jews were so, or so bent on the letter of the law, the letter of the law. And Jesus constantly is unteaching that, unpacking that. You say you've not committed adultery, but if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've already done that. You say you've not committed murder, but if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother. You say these things, but let me show you the, the, the spirit of the law. And then he even goes farther and he says, you want to talk about circumcision? Man, well, you know what happens when you come to God? He circumcises your hearts. He changes your heart. He changes your mind. Again, alluding to the difference that Christ can make in us. But then he goes on to say here, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. The word Jew comes from the word Judah and means praise. The idea of the Jews praising each other instead of seeking the praise of God takes on totally different meaning. 
So here we see Paul is perfectly clear that outside of Christ, we are all guilty. And while we may live good lives, we cannot live perfect lives, either under the law or outside of the law. We judge ourselves as sinful, and so will God on the day of wrath if we do not have Christ. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He lived the life Israel was supposed to live, and that sinless life is imputed or gifted to us through Christ. The gospel is not merely about the death of Christ. It is also about the life of Christ. Do you know why my life is accounted as righteous? In th- why right now I'm considered righteous for, for God? Not just because Jesus died for me, but because Jesus lived a sinless life, and that sinless life is imputed to me, as well as the death, burial, and resurrection. That is why I am considered righteous right now before God. And one day I'll be fully glorified before him as we see him face to face. It is 7.09. We'll take just a couple of minutes to open any questions up. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, something that jumped out to you, I got to keep looking over there. I don't want to leave Dennis out. He's like, what? What? You said my name? What? Yes, Kathy. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that we don't take sin nearly as serious as God does. And so when we sin, either as a believer or an unbeliever, and then something comes from that, whether it's built up or happens instantly, we are always taken off guard because to us it was no big deal. That's why I had somebody tell me one time um, in regards to Adam and Eve. And I mentioned this even in the, I think the men's Bible study, I might have mentioned this. When you talk about Adam and Eve, someone came to me and said, man, God's pretty crazy for the way he handled that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And this guy looked at me and said, they ate one piece of fruit and God curses all of humanity. That seems a little extreme. And now he, a little tongue in cheek, but sort of serious too. But the reason that seems so shocking to us is because we don't really understand sin. If we understood what that moment of sin, when they doubted God's word and trusted the word of the serpent, exchanged those two things, and then sinning there, and as a result of that ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of, that was just the result of a sinful decision. When we see that and we instantly go, man, God overreacted. God freaked out for nothing. No, 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 no. Then you don't really understand how much God deals with sin and how serious it is when we exchange his word for a lie. That violates his character, that violates his law, and it just, it's, it's blasphemy against him. And as a created being under his authority, anything I ever do that mocks, takes away from, detracts from him and his glory, he's perfectly right to judge me in any way he sees fit. But if we don't take sin seriously, we'll never understand why consequences for sin are so seriously. I totally agree with that. I think that's 100% accurate. Mike. Yeah.
Yeah, it, it's more than sad. It, it's it's condemning. It's damning is what it is. When we when we propagate these falsehoods and these false teachings, I mean, as churches, we're not only ourselves being deceived and deluding ourselves, we're leading others into that same deception. And it's, it's, it's heresy. It's wrong. Now, some would say they didn't know they were doing it. They weren't aware. They were just caught up in it. But there are some that blatantly teach false teaching and teach these things that this is how you get to heaven. And those people, I believe, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear on that. When we say, thus says the Lord and God never said it, there's a weight to that. And there's a consequence of that for sure. So I totally agree. And I think one thing that I've learned in ministry is that it doesn't matter what kind of church it is. We always tend to think the more, um, the more passionate the people are about God, that therefore they're somehow more connected to God. And that's not always true either. It's, it's that inward decision. I don't care what it looks like on the outside whether it's seemingly like there's life in this church. But Jesus even said, what do he say to Revel- in the Church of Revelation? He said, I, you look like you're alive. You look like you're alive. Was that Laodicea? You look like you're alive, but I know you're really dead. You look like you're this, but you're really blind. And so the church had a reputation of being, man, that's a great church. But inside, inwardly, they weren't really where God wanted them to be or needed to be. So absolutely great point. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions? Yeah, Mary. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And I think to me, again, if somebody was to ask, and again, if anyone's here interested, we can talk about it. The biggest reason I don't believe in infant baptism is because we don't see it in the book. It's not talked about. There's no verse that says be baptized as an infant, right? But there's every example we do read of someone being baptized apart from John the Baptist baptizing unto repentance. After Christ comes, we see baptism going back to the cross. It's even, think about, was it uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Is that Acts 8? Is that Acts 8? Um, He's in the chariot. They're talking through the passage. I believe it was out of Isaiah. They're going back and forth. He says, there's a body of water. What prevents me from being baptized? They stop the chariot. The guy, Philip says, what? Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Let's go. Let's get baptized. So belief was before baptism. And so to me, that's where, again, every, every example we see in Scripture, baptism follows salvation, not precedes it, apart from the work of John the Baptist. But I believe that was a separate time because it led to Christ in that way. So yeah, it is sad because I think there's so many people that have been led astray by that or have no... Now again, if the church tells a family member that, it's discouraging and hurtful to the family member and it causes a lot of pain. But I believe that doesn't change who God is. Right? And I believe that if an infant dies, it goes to heaven. That's what I believe. Because the church says it doesn't, doesn't change what God's word seems to imply that it does. So again, my only hope is and my joy is that if that family member knows Christ that one day they'll be reunited, even though they go through pain in this life because of a pastor, teacher, somebody, priest teaching those things to them. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Good stuff, guys. Good stuff. What's that? Somebody say something? I guess, yeah. All right, well, since it says God bless, see you next week, let's go ahead and close in prayer. (laughs) Amen. I see that motion to close. Amen. Let's pray. All right, let's pray, guys. Father, we thank you for tonight. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have shown to us. We thank you, Lord, that when we were undone in sin, completely deserving of wrath, 
that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, that you decided that you wanted to allow us the opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed, and to be forgiven. And I thank you, Lord, that there are those in this room that have made that choice, Lord. I pray that all have. I believe all have. But, Lord, I'm so thankful that we have all been able to have that opportunity. I thank you for your grace, that we didn't deserve it, but you extended it to us. I thank you for the time of repentance, that I pray that there are those right now in our area of influences in our lives that are mocking you and mocking your goodness, and yet you give them breath in their lungs. You give them every day that they live, and you're working in their life. And you're, I believe you're putting people around them to share Christ with them. And Lord, you are so good that you give time for repentance. And I pray, Lord, that we'd go into this week looking for opportunities to make disciples and to lead people to Christ. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing and will do in our life this week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday, 645. Don't forget, invite someone out to the Harvest Hayride.